great to keep that part of the Bible open. Uh, my name's Peter. If you've not met me before, it's great to be with you. Let's, uh, let's pray, though, and we'll look into this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Impress it upon us today, Father, that we might love you and serve you as well as we possibly can. Amen. Now, look, when my dad, when I was growing up, my dad uh, had a number of books by a man by the name of Tony Campolo. I'm not quite sure if you're aware of that name, but Tony in his day, Tony Campolo in his day, was this famous preacher in America. He preached, he preached to thousands. I mean, he preached for decades. He preached to presidents. But perhaps his most famous talk or sermon ever was this one he gave in his, in his home church, which just so happened to be an Afro-American church. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to an Afro-American church. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe you're just like me and you've seen the Blues Brothers. And so you know, right, that it's loud, it's vibrant, there's a lot of congregational participation. When the preaching's going well, it's hallelujah, brother, praise the Lord. And when it's going poorly, it's help him, Jesus, help him. Well, this day it was Good Friday. Campolo was preaching and he was having a good day. And the sermon, he was preaching a great sermon. And the, and the better he went, the louder the hallelujahs. And the louder the hallelujahs, the better he went. And it was a corker. And after he preached the sermon and finished, he sat down. And he sat down next to the old pastor of the church who leaned over and said to him, you did all right. Well, that morning in that, in that church, uh, there were to be two sermons, one by Campolo and one by the old pastor. And look, there was a bit of friendly rivalry between the two. And so Campolo leant over to the old man and said, well, do you think you can top that? And the old man looked at him back with a twinkle in his eye and he said, son, you just sit back because this old man's going to do you in. And Campolo reported that the old man preached for an hour and a half and he said, and he did me in. And he said he did me in with this one phrase that he kept on repeating over and over again. And the phrase was, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. That was Friday. And Mary was crying her eyes out and the disciples were running in every direction like sheep without a shepherd. But that was Friday. And Sunday's coming. It was Friday and the cynics of this world were saying as, as things have been, so they always will be. You can't change anything in this world. You can't change the things. But those cynics, they didn't know that it was Friday. And Sunday's coming. And the... And the more he went on, the louder he got. And the praise the Lord, hallelujah, they were saying. It was Friday. And, and Pilate, on Friday, thought he'd washed his hands of a whole lot of trouble. And the Pharisees, they're strutting around laughing and poking each other in the ribs because they thought they were back in charge of things. But they didn't know that it was Friday. And Sunday's coming. And that's about as afro as I can get. <laughs> uh, hallelujah, that's right. And, and he went on like this for about an hour and a half and he finished the sermon with this crescendo of a, it's Friday. And the whole church family shouted back, but Sunday's coming. And look, I, I think it's terrific, actually. I think it's a great, well, particularly a great Easter Sunday morning to feel triumphant and victorious and on top of the world because Jesus has risen from the grave. But I do wonder sometimes what part of the Bible the old man was preaching from that Sunday morning. 
Which gospel account of the resurrection was he going from? Because it couldn't have been John's gospel. Because in John's gospel, the, the disciples were hardly triumphant. They were cowering behind locked doors. And it couldn't have been Luke, because in Luke's gospel, we're told that when, when, when the disciples were told by the women that Jesus was alive again, they thought it to be an idle tale and complete nonsense. And I don't think it could have been Matthew either. Because in Matthew's gospel, when the disciples hear that Jesus is alive again, we're told that some of them doubted. And look, it certainly couldn't have been Mark. The passage just read for us. Because the distance between it's Friday but Sunday's coming and Mark's account, then it couldn't be further, further apart. And so friends, this morning I want to forget the hype and I certainly don't want to pump you up and we certainly don't want a preaching competition that goes for an hour and a half. But what I do want to, hallelujah, sorry, what I do, what I do want to do with you this morning though is look at what, what is well, the New Testament's most unimpressive account of the resurrection. In fact, so unimpressive that well-meaning Christians have felt the need to improve on it. Because for, frankly to them, as it stands, Mark chapter 16 is inadequate. But let's look at it as it stands and listen to what God actually has to say to us. Come with me, Bob. Look there. Open up at Mark chapter 16. We're going to pick it up from verse 1. It starts like this. When the Sabbath was over and Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they could go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, well, who will roll away the stone? Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now the story you can see, it starts, it starts early on a Sunday morning, it starts we get told they're just after sunrise, it's a dawn just after sunrise, and the women, they're on their way to the graveyard. And we know that as they, they're going, they're not going because, well, they're not going because in their heads they're going, you know, when Jesus was alive, he told us that he'd be beaten and mocked and handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they'd flog him and crucify him and he'll die and three days later he'll rise again. And so we're here at the tomb to see him rising. They're not like that at all, are they? These women go to the tomb on that Sunday morning because this was the very first chance they had to pay their last respects to their dead master. You see, the day before was a Saturday. Saturday is a Sabbath for the Jewish people and so they just simply couldn't go to the tomb. It would make them unclean to be in contact with a dead body. And so this Sunday morning, at dawn on Sunday morning, is the very earliest opportunity that these women had to pay their last respects to Jesus. And as one act of final devotion, they came to anoint Jesus' dead body with spices. And it is right, it's a dead body. You don't go and bring spices to anoint the living, but the dead. And the furthest thing from their minds that morning was that Jesus might be alive. I mean, I think it was like that because these women were not, well, they were there when Jesus died. If, you've, if you do read the accounts of, uh, in Mark's Gospel and the other accounts, it is the disciples, isn't it, who run away as cowards. But the women 
Oh, they're there at Golgotha. They are watching. They saw the, the, the spear go into his side. They would have heard those last gasps of breath. And they would have seen the death and then the silence. And then the taking of the body down. And they, they, they saw it. Some of you have seen similar things. Maybe you have been there at the hospital side when, a, when, a, when someone who's close to you has taken their last breaths and you know that silence and there's no doubt that they're gone. Well, that's the women. They were there, they saw him die, they saw the dead body and so as one last act of devotion, they come to anoint his dead body with spices. And I think you can also tell that, that they're not expecting a, a Jesus to be alive just by their sheer emotional state as they walk to the tomb. Because did you notice that as they walk to the tomb, it's only once they get close to it that they begin to realise, hey, there's a big stone in front of it and how, how are we going to move that? We didn't think about that. It, it's kind of like in their sadness, in their, in their grief, it's so overwhelming that they're just walking around in a daze. And I'm guessing some of you here know that as well. When, when someone who, who, who's close to you has died and it is so overwhelming that you, you don't know what day it is, it's kind of going from one moment to the next, that's, that's these women just in, in that kind of grief haze. And so they get up early, they gather their spices, they walk off completely forgetting that there's no way for them to get into the tomb for the dead body in the first place. But do you notice that even when they arrive and the tomb is open, even at that moment, I still think the idea of Jesus being alive is the furthest thing from their mind. Because look at, look at verse 4. Look what happens when they arrive. When they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Verse 5, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe on the right side, and they were alarmed. They were alarmed. I mean, when they arrived, they didn't go, oh, that's right. Now we remember he said he'd be alive again. No, they're alarmed. They'd come to see a corpse. And when they gingerly walk inside the tomb, they still expect to see a corpse. But instead, they see a young man dressed in white. I take it's an angel. And they are alarmed. And can you imagine the emotions going through them? The, the, the nervousness, the confusion, the anxiety, the perplexity. And this young man dressed in white speaks to them. And even the words he says are the last thing they're expecting. Look at, verse, look at what he says, verse 6. He says to them, don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus and Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. I mean, see the place where they've laid him. But go. Tell the disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I don't know if these women recognize that the young man was actually an angel. But the words the angel delivers are genuinely words from God. And the words that they really, really needed to hear. Don't be afraid. There is no reason for alarm. No, you've not come to the wrong tomb. You're at the right place. But ladies, the truth is, 
He's not here. He is risen. In other words, there's no point in hanging around here anymore. Ladies, there's nothing here for you. You can go. He is risen. And I just love those three words, he is risen. Because in, in some ways, this is crucial words for them to hear. But not just for them. This is crucial words for all of humanity to hear. That God would declare that his son, who was crucified, dead and buried, he is risen. And I think fundamentally, Christians believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because our God declared that he is risen. Now, of course, there is evidence for it. It's not like it's the only thing we have is God's declaration. There is evidence and compelling evidence. Um, evidence like, um, like the fact that there are so many accounts of the resurrection. You've got the four accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But even the Apostle Paul will talk about that time when uh, Jesus, after he died and rose again from the dead, was actually seen by a crowd of 500 people. And, and the way Paul writes about it is saying, well, if... if if you weren't there and you missed it, heaps of them are alive. Just go and ask them. I mean, that's strong evidence that you could call upon 500 witnesses. That's evidence. Or even evidence like the dramatic change in the disciples. From You know, they were cowards hiding away. And then all of a sudden, they're risking their necks to proclaim the truth that Jesus is alive. I mean, how do you explain that change in behavior unless Jesus really was alive and it was really important to tell other people? I think you even see evidence from the way in which these accounts unfold themselves because the disciples who wrote the accounts always look like they're, they're hopeless. Right? They're all unbelieving, they're all doubting, all this kind of stuff. I, I think if you were fabricating the account, you'd leave that detail out, not make yourself look so bad. And I think if you were going to fabricate the account, then the last people you would pick as witnesses would be women. Because you've got to remember that the, the Gospel of Mark, as in all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're not written in 21st century post-women's liberation Australia. They're written in the first century. At a time and a place where to verify the truth of an account, you would need two male witnesses. And the testimony of women was just not considered to be worth that much. So why would you say that the first witnesses were women. Unless the first witnesses were women. And you were not prepared because of your commitment to tell the truth to fudge the evidence. See, I, I think the evidence is, is overwhelming. But even beyond the evidence, even though we have so much evidence... It does boil down to the word that Jesus gave, uh, that God gave. He is risen. What are you, you going to do about it? How are you going to respond to the, this news? Are you going to pin all your hopes for now and eternity on God and his trustworthiness? He is risen. Or are you going to pin your hopes on the, on the dream that this is all a hoax? I mean, either way, what you do with these three words, he is risen, will determine your eternity. Now, the women were told these words, and they were told that because he is risen, go. Go and tell the disciples. Go to Peter and tell Peter, he is risen. 
Go and tell the disciples and go and tell Peter that the risen Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee and he will meet you there. Now there's a couple of, there's two interesting things I want to highlight here in that little direction they're told to go and tell. It is interesting, isn't it, that that Peter gets a specific mention. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. And it makes you wonder why, why is he specifically mentioned? And of course, for you Bible readers, I'm sure you're, you know, he denied Jesus three times. I, I think Peter gets his, well, the truth is, isn't it, all the disciples abandoned Jesus. So they are all failures. But it is Peter and his failure denying Jesus uh, three times that gets particular mention. And it is interesting that when the, when the angel talks to the women, says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. And I think what we're meaning to, to see there is, the implication is, oh, there's forgiveness for failure. For the failure of the disciples. For the failure of Peter, who swore like on his children's life that he had never met. Failure for that. There is forgiveness for that. Jesus really wants to see you. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. But that brings up the second interesting thing in that statement. Go and tell the disciples, go and tell Peter. He is going to go ahead of you to Galilee. And I read that and go, why Galilee? Why is that the location? I think more naturally you would think that the, the angel would say, Jesus is going ahead of you and he's going to Jerusalem. That's, I think, what you'd more naturally expect to read there. Because um, Jerusalem was where they killed him, right? Uh, Jesus is uh, the Jewish Messiah. You would expect him to rise and be seen in the Jewish capital, the centre of Jewish religion there in Jerusalem. But the angel doesn't say, go to Jerusalem. The angel says, go to Galilee. Why Galilee? I take it it's because Galilee is actually away from Jerusalem. That's the point. In fact, if you'd been reading all of Mark's gospel up to chapter 16, we obviously haven't done that recently, but um, maybe you have in your quiet times or something, but if you'd been reading all of Mark's gospel to this point, you would know that back in chapter 14, Jesus had already told them in advance that he, when he rises from the dead, he'll meet them in Galilee. But you would also know that back in Mark chapter 11, there was that incident with Jesus and the fig tree when he cursed the fig tree and it withered and it, was, and it died. And what happened with the fig tree when when Jesus did that, is that he came looking for fruit on the fig tree, but there was no fruit. And so its time had come because there was no fruit and it was, it was to be done away with. And Jesus in that moment was very deliberately giving us a taste of what was about to happen to the Jewish leaders and to the Jewish religion because God had come looking for fruit and he'd found none. And it was fruitless. And so its time had come. It was about to wither, about to be done away with. I think you even see that in Jesus' death when he does die and the, 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 the curtain in the temple is torn in two. Showing us that in Jesus' death, the Jewish temple itself is effectively pushed aside. If you remember the curtain, the curtain that got torn from top to bottom, it was a curtain that stopped people having direct access to God and God himself ripped up the curtain because God himself was pushing the temple and Jerusalem and the Jewish leadership aside and saying it no longer has that central place. It's no longer actually needed. 
It's actually God's way of saying that to be one of his special chosen people, you don't have to be an Israelite. You no longer have to come to the temple. Because through Jesus' death, it didn't ma- doesn't matter now if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're Chinese, Australian, Korean or Indonesian. It doesn't matter if you've got a university degree, if you left school in year 10. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you're a CEO or unemployed, married or single, black or white, male or female. None of that matters because you can be reconciled to God through Jesus because he bore our punishment for us all in his place. And that then was vindicated as successful when he rose from the dead, defeating sin and, 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 and death. And so when Jesus rises, he doesn't rise to go to Jerusalem. No, Jerusalem's time has come. The angel says he will go ahead of you to Galilee. Galilee, as Isaiah talked about it, Galilee of the nations. Galilee, that part of Israel that is the gateway to the rest of the world. Because after his resurrection, Jesus will go ahead of his disciples to Galilee, to the world, into the nations, because hope for the whole world starts here. Hope for you and me starts here. And it is genuine hope, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, when I, when I think about Jesus' death, we've looked at it on Good Friday and we kind of, it's hard, I actually think when, when, they, when they killed Jesus, I, I often think this is the most stupidest moment of humanity. It really, when you think logically about it, it really is because many of us here, not all of us, but many of us here would have lost a loved one. Someone who we love deeply has, has, has died and is gone. And, and depending, even if it was a long time ago, you will still feel the ache of that. But in Jesus, remember what he did when he was when he was alive before they crucified him. Remember that time he um, he went to see Jairus because Jairus's daughter was sick, and in fact, Jairus's daughter was dead. And Jesus takes a couple of disciples with the parents into the room, and he says to the little girl, even though she's dead, she's, he says, "Talitha kum," which means "little girl, get up." And the dead girl comes back to life again. Here is someone who's genuinely got power over death. And not just once. Of course, you, the more famous one is, remember, Lazarus. You've got Mary and Martha. They call for Jesus to come because their brother's sick, but Lazarus is so sick that Jesus doesn't come quick enough and he's dead. They wrapped him in, they put him in a tomb. And then Jesus, in front of all sorts of people, raises him back to life again. Jesus genuinely has power over death. Really does. And, and you think... What were they thinking when they decided, oh, he, he is the one we've got to kill? What were they thinking? I mean, I know they had their own political agenda and power games and all that kind of stuff. But if you have someone who can genuinely bring dead people back to life again, wouldn't you think that the craziest thing in the world would be to murder that guy? I mean, how stupid. And yet, that's what they did. And now we find out that Jesus himself, risen from the grave, that so powerful is him that not even his own death can conquer him. This is why we've been calling the series, Easter Hope Starts Here, because it does start here. And I don't know if you're here this morning and you need hope, I guess we all do. But I'm not talking about hope for a better job or hope for a sunny day. 
or hope for an end of some sickness. But if you need that deep, deep, deep hope that every human needs, hope that death itself has genuinely been defeated, then in Jesus' resurrection, hope starts here. In fact, hope ends here. This is where it starts and ends. Solid hope in the face of your own upcoming death starts and ends here. It does raise that question of, you know, what, do, you, do you follow him? Do you trust him? There is no other hope. Now, given this level of hope and the importance of this news, when the angel says to the women, you know, go, he's going to go, you know, go and tell Peter, go and tell the disciples, he's going to go to Galilee. Given how critically important the hope is, it's amazing what happens next. Did you see verse 8? Look at verse 8 in your Bibles. Go and tell Peter, go and tell the disciples, go and tell them this news. And in verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's amazing, isn't it? The women are told, don't be alarmed, don't be afraid, go and tell. And then they went out and they were terrified and they were alarmed and they told no one. End of story. What a bizarre ending to the book. I kind of want to say, what do you mean by end of story? I mean, what about the risen Jesus? What about telling the disciples? What happens next? Mark, you can't finish a story like that. You can't do that. What, what did happen next? You know, I don't know about you and the way you like your movies, but for me and the way I like my, I like them all nice and neatly wrapped up. I like the happy ending, obviously, but I want more than the happy ending. I want all the loose ends kind of tidied up for me so I'm not left hanging. That's how I like my movies. I know it's a little old, but many of you here have probably seen the movie The Lord of the Rings. I love the way The Lord of the Rings movies end because you don't kind of see the ring destroyed. Sorry if I'm a spoiler. But anyway, you don't, know, you don't see the, the ring destroyed and then the credits start rolling. I mean, they could have done that, right? The, the big things. But no, 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 it's not like that. They, they, they destroyed a ring, and then you've got another half hour of Aragorn going to Gondor to get crowned as king, and Samwise and, um, and Frodo going, getting back to the Shire, and Sam getting married, and then you've got Bilbo going with the elves off into the ships into the distance. and Every main character has their storyline nice and neatly. I love it. That's how I like my movies. I like my stories. I want it all tidied up. And I think many people want their gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection just like that. Which is why I think some years later, a well-meaning yet equally frustrated Christian decided to finish Mark's gospel for us. To give us the ending we wanted to have. And so we, what we have is called the, the longer ending of Mark's gospel. You can see it if you've got your Bibles open there, because in your Bibles, Mark chapter 16 kind of ends at verse 20. But please notice it in your Bibles that after verse 8, there should be a little bracketed section, which then tells you, that at the end of verse 8 it says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses 
do not have Mark 16 verses 9 to 20. And what you're being told there is that the earliest manuscripts, and that if you then do the digging around, you will also find out the most reliable manuscripts. They simply don't have these extra verses. It's telling us that in all likelihood, these verses have been added later on. And honestly, I don't think it's hard to imagine why, because in all likelihood, around the first century AD, long before the printing press and photocopiers, some poor scribe got the job of copying out the entirety of Mark's gospel. And he gets to the end of Mark's gospel and he goes, Huh, it's a bit frustrating. The women went out and said nothing. Oh, hang on, I know what happens. I've got a copy here of Luke's gospel, and of John, and of Acts, and of and Matthew. I know how this ends. And so to just tidy things up, he uh, fills in the details that Mark left out. But it's not the story that Mark gave us. The word of God, according to Mark, finishes at verse 8. The word of man which tried to improve upon the word of God, begins at verse 9. So forget verse 9. We have to live with a gospel that sounds like it's unfinished. And as frustrating as that is, that's the whole point. The story is unfinished and it's very, very deliberately like that because when it's left unfinished, you are forced to think through for yourself. Ah, what should have happened? What was the right thing to do? You ought to be reading this this, this chapter here and and thinking about these women and going, you know, that's not careless. I mean, that's beyond sloppy. Their behaviour here is reckless. What were they thinking? To have the news that Jesus is risen, news that is the only source of real hope for the disciples and for Peter and for everybody else in the universe, they have the own, and then to go out and say nothing? I mean, that is outrageous. That is negligence, is what we call it in our day and age. But as soon as you think like that about the negligence of the women, What Mark is doing is that he makes you feel this way so that he can turn the spotlight off the women and put the spotlight on you. For like the women, you too have now heard the news. He is risen. And you too have heard, go and tell. So what are you going to do? Mark's gospel doesn't have an ending because because you're the ending. In this way, it's like uh, quite a number of Jesus' parables. Uh, they, they often finish like this. Remember that parable, the parable of the prodigal son? Very famous parable, you know, the one where where son runs away, away from home and wastes his father's money, but he comes back repentant and the father forgives him. But as the father forgives him, and of course there's the older son, The older son who hasn't wasted his father's property and money and things like that. And he sees the father's kindness on his younger brother. And he's enraged by his father's compassion. 
And this, this older brother refuses to go in and celebrate with the family. And the parable ends with the father then coming outside to the older son. And the father pleads with the older son to take the prodigal back in, the son back in. But what will the older brother do? What will you do? We'll take another parable of the of the uh, a man falls among thieves and gets beaten and, and badly treated and people walk past him and his fellow Jews walk past him and no one cares for him but an enemy, a Samaritan, comes along and picks him up and cares for him and a question is asked about who is my brother and Jesus tells a parable and says go and do likewise and what did he do? What will you do? Here at the end of Mark's Gospel, an angel announces to these women that Jesus is risen. Go and tell. What did they do? What will you do?